Hello and welcome to this podcast, Top Class, where we talk about all things education. I'm your host, Duncan Crawford, and today we're talking about Canada. Specifically, what can the rest of the world learn from the eastern Canadian province of New Brunswick to help create fairer education systems that cater to the needs of all students? I'm glad to say I'm joined by John McLaughlin, who up until very recently was Deputy Minister for Education and Early Childhood Development in New Brunswick for its Anglophone sector. John, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. It's a pleasure. Now, to those who don't know you, You've had a lot of roles in the education field. You've been a teacher, director of education, superintendent of schools, assistant deputy minister, deputy minister, recently retired from, and you're chair of Atlantic International Education, which supports learning around the world. You've held or still do a host of other roles as well. So um, I guess to begin with, you've recently left your role as Deputy Minister. Is there anything publicly you want to get off your chest? <laughs> well, actually, I had left my role three years ago and when I retired and um, was asked last November if I would come back just on the inter- interim basis until a permanent Deputy Minister was appointed. And that happened at the end of February. So uh, I really did enjoy being back um, with the team. And it's good to be back into semi-retirement again. Today we're talking to you because New Brunswick is something of a success story. Is that fair to say when it comes to diversity and inclusion, where the education system is based on nurturing quality education for everyone, regardless of background? Yes, I would say New Brunswick is unique. And I would say we're a success story, but we're on a continuous path of of improvement. Uh, I don't believe that you ever are completely inclusive and equitable. I think it's a journey that, um, that education systems take. But uh, New Brunswick, back about 35 years ago, enshrined inclusive education in its Education Act. And so it is now a, a standard that all students, regardless of their background, their intellectual, physical, socio-emotional, socioeconomic background or, or, um, or challenges, have a place of belonging in our public school system. And, and that's a bit unique uh, for, for Canada, I guess, for mo- most of the world. Uh, and it's something we're extremely proud of. But again, there are many challenges that we continue to address and, um, and we continue to evolve uh, as new challenges come up or we face new realities. So, so why do you think it has been a success? What, what's gone right in New Brunswick and where, why is it that other places perhaps aren't doing the same as you? I think it started with it becoming policy. It was, it was just enshrined right in our Education Act that there is, there's no question about it. All children and youth have a place in our education system and that it's up to us as educators and leaders in the education system and the greater community to make that work. There's just no question about it. It, it will happen and it does happen. It hasn't been without its challenges uh, and it hasn't been without its detractors, but also growing support over these 35 years that I don't think anybody in New Brunswick now would question the value and the importance of inclusive education. When you talk about challenges and detractors, what have been the biggest challenges? I think, you know, being an inclusive education system and and striving for equity is not easy. It's very difficult for teachers to have such a myriad, uh, a breadth of students with different needs 
and skills and challenges all in the same classroom and to be able to provide the supports that all students need to be able to thrive. So that hasn't been easy. And, um, you know, you're dealing with, in some cases, some very extreme uh, behaviors and volatile behaviors and distractions in the classroom. And that can be um, difficult on some students and on teachers. And, it, and we do our very best to put the supports in place and the training in place to help teachers uh, and other educators and, the, and professionals in the school system to meet the needs of these students. So I guess that would be the biggest one is really just being able to address everybody's needs because we are committed to that. And, you know, we're thinking more and more about equity uh, and about inclusion is in, in our mind is really about all students have a place. But equity is about ensuring each of them thrives that we have the supports in place to address each individual and unique learner. And so that failure to learn is never um, the, the fault of the student, right? It's about us finding the way to meet those, those students' needs. So it's very challenging. And also there's a lot of um, demands from uh, stakeholder groups, for example, who want to make sure to better provide the provision of, of stronger, better services for, uh, for students who they speak for. And there are limited resources. So it's about continually finding that balance. Let's pick up on some of the things you mentioned there. You know, in, in terms of the challenges, you know, for example, you talked about you know, bringing teachers on board. Do you ever get certain teachers, perhaps a maths teacher, for example, saying, you know, look, I'm trying to get kids to understand statistics and equations. How can I be expected to do all this other stuff as well do you have you ever had that kind of situation and how do you confront it yeah absolutely we do and and our our goal is to have students in the regular classroom as much as possible and to differentiate the learning and it's it is you know quite um common to have a student in a grade eight math class whose uh, whose skills are maybe at a kindergarten or grade one level or maybe even be before that and so the teachers uh, they work with um with uh, other teachers in the school who are skilled at being able to help differentiate, differentiate the learning, to create individualized learning plans for those students, and to have support in delivering on those plans. So it's not all just about the regular classroom teacher having to actually teach so many different students at the same time, um, but to be able to differentiate within the classroom. So there would be many uh, what we call education assistants uh, who are in, in uh, classrooms with teachers who help uh, students to, um, to, uh, to learn the, and to achieve the objectives of their own individualized plans, uh, but also um, uh, other, other professionals who work in the classrooms as well with teachers and in the schools. D does that cost a lot of extra money? Yeah, absolutely. Inclusion, inclusive education is not cheap. And um, it does require us to put a lot of additional resources in schools. There's, I guess, two different kinds of, of funding that takes place. There's the basic funding that goes to all schools, I guess, based on the population that they're in or in the area in which they live, but also additional funding that goes to help students who have particular needs. And those costs are growing, and they're growing as we uh, identify more and more needs of students that we hadn't been addressing in the past. For example... Uh, New Brunswick is a very small province on the Atlantic uh, coast of Canada. Uh, we have about 70,000 uh, students in the Anglophone sector of our province, and over the last five years, we've had 10,000 newcomer students come, many who are coming with uh, trauma-related experiences, many who don't uh, speak English at all, 
um, many who are living now in, uh, in socioeconomically uh, challenging situations, um, many with, with socio-emotional or physical or, or intellectual disabilities. So it's a whole new, we're continually having to be flexible in being open to, to receiving and, uh, and supporting students who have kind of an intersectional, intersectionality of different needs. And you're talking and, about migrants and refugees. Uh, that's right, here. yeah. Yeah, that's right. Because you mentioned you are quite a small province. So is that a, a particularly pressing issue for, 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 for New Brunswick? It's actually a gift to New Brunswick because we have a declining population. Uh, we have an aging population, and so we really need to have a, an increase in our population and of newcomers. So that's been a real gift to us, and we welcome uh, the diversity. We welcome the new uh, newcomers to New Brunswick, but it does create new challenges for us in being able to make sure that the students and their families are well served. Is one of those challenges the language issue? I presume can everyone speak the language? It's absolutely a challenge, and we have um, strategies in place to support uh, students in learning uh, to speak English as an additional language. Uh, it's not uncommon now in, in certain schools where you would have a classroom of seven or eight students with seven or eight different languages and none of them being English. So, yeah, it's, a, it's an exciting challenge, uh, but it's certainly a challenge that teachers are facing, and so we have uh, practices in place for linguistically and culturally appropriate um, uh, teaching and learning. How, how practically does that work if you've got, like you say, six, seven different languages being spoken in the classroom and they're not necessarily all sharing a common language such as English? How, how do you overcome that? It's, it's very challenging. And, you know, I just was through a round of consultations with teachers on a whole other topic, and that was one of the things that they spoke about. Uh, is the challenge of so many different languages in their classroom. And so we we put in place uh, in schools uh, English as an additional language specialist who go in and work with these students in their classroom. Sometimes we'll take them out uh, to do some work with them. I think one of the fallacies about inclusion in our province is that some people feel that all students all the time in the regular classroom and that they would never be withdrawn for any kind of uh, individualized help. And that's not really the case, that there are times when there are just alternative placements that are needed for short periods of time or for specific purposes, and that would be one of them. Do you ever get parents complaining, thinking that all this attention is coming on, on other students who have special needs and they feel that that's not fair to their child? Is that something you have to deal with? Absolutely. You know, I don't know that we've done a particularly uh, tremendous job in terms of serving gifted students and talented students. I think there has been a focus on, um, on the, the disability lens uh, in New Brunswick, but we're changing that. We're moving to more of an inclusive, fully inclusive and equitable um, uh, belief system and value system that really is about how do we differentiate the learning for all students. But that certainly has been a, a uh, challenge, but also on uh, at the other end as well, there are some parents who have students with, uh, for example, intellectual disability, who want their students in a separate location. They would prefer to have their students served uh, and to be spending more time uh, with learning the outcomes that would be more appropriate for them as opposed to being in a regular classroom. So 
it's always about finding that that right balance and staying true to our our value system of inclusive education of everybody being together of learning together of creating that kind of empathy uh, and mutual mutual support um, at the same time meeting the individual needs of students I guess the sense I'm getting from what you just said there is that it's really important to have community participation in all of this. How hard is it to get the community pulling all in the same direction? By the sounds of it, very hard. Uh, well, no, I wouldn't say so. I would say that there's a, there's a common belief in our goal of inclusive, of fully inclusive and equitable education system. It's how do we get there? And it's about uh, ensuring that, that students of whatever their uniqueness is, that those that their uniquenesses are being met. And so sometimes when you're working with stakeholder groups, they really want to emphasize the, the, the children that they represent more than others. But overall, I think there's this common belief in, in inclus- inclusion uh, as, a, as a fundamental principle that we live by. And that communication, although sometimes we will have meetings with stakeholders that are challenging, we never walk away. We always have, you know, we leave <laughs> polite we don't go away mad. We agree to come back and to talk some more. And I do believe that there's, a, there's a, uh, an overall commitment to what it is that we're trying to achieve with inclusion from across stakeholder groups. It's just how do we do it and how do we make sure the needs of particular um, groups are addressed. So, for example, um, you know, we will have uh, meetings with our Indigenous education leaders. We'll have meetings with those who speak on behalf of LGBTQ uh, students, of students with physical, mental, socio-emotional disabilities, and sometimes there's a disconnect between what each is looking for, but overall, the, the, everybody agrees the journey is worth it, and it's worth our continuing to talk. It, it's, it's interesting how you're saying, you know, everyone agrees on the journey forward there. Um, I'm wondering in terms of Canada as a whole, you know, there's 10 provinces in Canada, three territories. Um, are other provinces in Canada following the same model as you, the same advice? I think there's, again, a belief in inclusive education. Everybody maybe addresses it a little differently. I believe, although I'm not entirely sure, that New Brunswick is the one that has taken this to the, to the furthest extent in terms of having it, uh, having it, it's a law. It's the law that every child has a place in school and there are no separate schools that are publicly funded um, in New Brunswick for students with any kind of, of differences. Um, but I think each province and territory is on its own journey and I, I do believe there's an intent to, to be inclusive and engaging and welcoming uh, to all students. But how, it's, how it evolves, I guess it might be a different story. Yeah, what you're saying reflects a lot of what... OECD research is saying that more equitable and inclusive education helps students achieve their full potential, that supporting diversity in education can lead to better academic results, careers, help enhance societies overall and so on. Um, How important is it to promote diversity amongst teaching staff as well to actually reflect the student population? Is that important? It is important. I would say that New Brunswick, um, until quite recently, has been a m- more homogeneous as a society maybe than many others. Diversity in terms of our population is just beginning to expand, uh, and so we'll see more of that. But we certainly do want students to, to identify and see themselves 
reflected in the people, the teachers who they're working with. Uh, that's particularly important with our Indigenous, our First Nations uh, students. Um, you know, when we, that sense of belonging in a, in a public school is extremely important and it's so different than what uh, perhaps they're used to in their First Nations community. And so the more First Nations people we can have in our schools supporting them, either as teachers or as other support people, uh, the better. Forgive me if this is a stupid question, but I'm going to ask, you know, New Brunswick is the only officially bilingual province in Canada, I understand. About a third of the population live and work speaking in French. So is the Francophone side of New Brunswick doing the same thing as the Anglophone sector? Yeah, uh, absolutely they are. Um, New Brunswick has one Department of Education and Early Childhood Development with one minister, but there are two sectors under that. There's a deputy minister for the Anglophone sector and one for the Francophone sector, but the Education Act applies to all. And so the Francophone sector fully embraces inclusive education and faces many of the same challenges that we do as well. And we learn from each other. Our our staffs uh, work closely together uh, in terms of planning and strategy and training, identifying and developing training for teachers and so forth. When you speak to other leaders in the world of education from other countries who might not be as focused on equity, on inclusion, on making sure that there are education systems catering to the needs of all students, um, what what do you think when you look at those other education systems? I, I, is it because they're not as interested, they're not a, as aware of what you believe is so important? No, again, as I said when we began, everybody's on a journey and you can have certain beliefs, but to get there is is challenging. As I said, we're, I think, fortunate in New Brunswick that we had it uh, uh, enshrined in the Education Act over 35 years ago. So this is the way it will be and we make it happen and we've been making it happen for all these years and we have a long way to go. I've spoken with other um, other uh, colleagues around the world who said that's that's a goal that they have, but there would be resistance from parents, for example, who would not want to th- their students to stop attending uh, separate schools. You just said there's a lot of work for you still to do, but you know I look at you know OECD PISA tests, for example, which assess globally how well 15 year olds do in reading, maths, and science. Canada's performed very strongly in those tests. In the last ones in 2018, it was among the top performing countries. And the gap between advantaged and disadvantaged students is lower in Canada on average than the OECD average. So something is obviously going right, but you're still saying there's a long way to go. How much further do you need to go? <laughs> I think you'll never get there. I think there will always be challenges that we face. Like, you know, education, it's a human endeavor. It's not like some kind of, uh, you know, kind of medical treatment you can give to somebody and, 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 and fix a community. It's, 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 a, it's a messy, but it's a wonderful and it's a beautiful endeavor, but there will always be, uh, there'll always be challenges. I also want to say that Canada is a very privileged country. Uh, you know, we, we do well uh, on international testing, but we also have many resources that other uh, countries don't have. And, you know, I've, I've been to uh, different meetings at OECD or the United Nations where I'm just uh, really, I, I, I'm smacked by our privilege when I hear about students and, the, and their families and the challenges they have just to get to school. So, you know, I, I'm always aware of our privilege. Uh, I think we shouldn't take that for granted. And I think we have a lot to learn from other places in, in the world as well. 
um, and that we have to be continually trying to improve. Going back to what you said earlier then about sometimes needing four, five, six potentially different specialists in the room of a classroom to handle various differences, is a lot of that aspirational but ultimately impractical for some countries just because of the amount of money it would involve? I, I agree. And it is a huge financial commitment. And it's, it's always a, a challenge to decide where is the money best spent. Um, oftentimes there's a, there's a, a uh, request from schools, I need more education assistance. I just need somebody to be in this classroom with this child to help them um, manage their behaviors or to help them with their learning. When really what we might need more of are, uh, you know, people who are, who are really uh, skilled at differentiating learning or we might need more speech language pathologists or we might need more, more psychologists or we might need more occupational therapists. And the education assistant, as important as they are, it becomes the thing that people request very quickly and say, if I only had that, then I could kind of keep things uh, calm in my classroom. Uh, and really, I think we need deeper change, and we're still trying to work that out. If you know, there's a policymakers or teachers listening to this who want to mimic some of the apparent success you've had and some of the changes you've brought in, you know, obviously it's not going to happen overnight from what you've been telling us, but are there certain areas where they could fast-track? There are certain things they could enact quickly. Yeah, I think uh, it begins with communication and bringing together stakeholders. And, you know, I've been involved in a number of educational changes over the years, uh, many of which have just fallen flat because they didn't have a good change management strategy in place. And it didn't begin with uh, engagement of all stakeholders, uh, getting a common uh, vision of what is it that we really want to achieve, what problem are we trying to, to address here, and how can we take things a step at a time and have a long-term strategy for improvement. Uh, a lot of times, you know, and this happens, I guess, uh, sometimes when there's a, a political desire for change is that we want change and we want, we, want, uh, we want evidence right now that it's working. And education takes a long time. So it's about being patient, continuing to talk, um, you know, uh, and I guess learning from others who, uh, communicating with others who've been down this road. We're always uh, very, very happy to speak with anybody from other jurisdictions. We get a lot of people visiting us. Um, unfortunately, we can't make it happen for people. It's a journey that each jurisdiction has to take on their own. But focusing on things like teacher training, on communication, on making sure there's data that you're collecting and monitoring, uh, on being flexible, um, those things are really important. So if you were speaking to a government planning reforms and they wanted to do something quickly, you know, to be, they might be more focused on quick fixes because they want to show results, um, you'd be advising, no, don't do that. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, we, with election cycles being short, New Brunswick an election cycle is four years, and uh, typically you'll have a government that uh, lasts one election cycle or maybe two, uh, and they want evidence of improvement uh, right away. And we just have to urge patience and caution. And change is not easy uh, for many people. And it can be frustrating that some uh, people, teachers, for example, can, can stand in the way of change. But we have to realize that it's genuine, that it's coming from a genuine place of fear or uncertainty or uh, really not understanding, not knowing 
not having confidence. And so you have to build all of that up with really good teacher training and coaching and support. And you have to expect that you're going to go through that kind of storming phase uh, and be able to withstand that. OECD research in this area says there are universally relevant key steps. First and foremost, putting a framework in place where equity and inclusion is incorporated in all policy areas. Um, How important is that? How high up do you place that as a starting point? Very high. But there has to be an agreement, I think, among key stakeholders, parents, teachers, community, uh, advocacy groups, on what that framework should look like. I don't think um, a top-down framework, this, you know, this is with, without that kind of consultation, a genuine, authentic consultation, just a, a framework dumped on the system will get the buy-in that it needs. To take you back a few decades to when you started on this, um, and you, you were presumably involved in those conversations with different parts of the community, what were there huge differences, big splits about how things should be uh, put together? I wasn't actually. That was uh, before my time as a teacher. Um, but I, I recall uh, as a young man the, uh, the discussions that went on. There was fear, I think, about... Um, I remember there was fear from some people that students with intellectual disabilities would be bullied or picked on in the regular uh, system. I remember that was a big, uh, a big issue that that was concerning to many people. Um, there was also the concern of how, how do you manage all of these different um, disabilities, I guess, was the focus at the time in one classroom. I don't know how much consultation took place. I know it resulted in, in a bill that changed the Education Act. Um, and uh, I became a teacher when inclusion was pretty firmly in place back in uh, 1990. When you have spoken to education leaders in other provinces of Canada, are they looking over their shoulder enviously at what's been achieved? Um, I don't, I haven't had those conversations. I think, I think there's different views on inclusion. I think um, uh, education leaders that I've spoken with are comfortable with the, with the direction they're going. Uh, I don't think they look to New Brunswick uh, with envy. I think they do appreciate uh, and respect what it is we do in New Brunswick. I'm not sure that they feel it's it's uh, you know better than what it is that they do. Understood. Um, a few more questions. What's the biggest failure in terms of education policy that you've seen over the last decade or so that you wish hadn't happened, which you've learned from? Um, if I think back, for example, on changes that were not well planned. I think back on back in the late 90s, early 2000s on, you know, the rise of technology and this race to get computers in every classroom and and interactive whiteboards in every classroom without any plan for what what was going to be different, for how teachers would use this differently, what the outcomes would be for students. There was just this race. We're going to get we're going to get these things in every classroom and they really didn't result in any appreciable gains uh, I didn't see. And I think it's because there wasn't that a framework in place for what it was that, that we were trying to achieve, how it could be achieved, what kind of teacher training would need to take place, what kinds of activities students would be engaged in, how they would achieve certain outcomes with it. Uh, and so I kind of wish we hadn't done that. I wish we had 
taken that opportunity to really look at, at the time, 21st century uh, learning skills and how we could use technology to really, to really uh, nurture those in the school system and to have a really solid plan around it. And all too often, we kind of, in education, look at what's, what's glittery and we, we want to jump on that without having the bigger plan. I would say our inclusive education planning and strategy has been evolving for 35 years and is still evolving. And it's, uh, I'm very proud of how, how flexible we are with it, how resilient we are as a system as we um, meet different challenges. And, uh, and I think how we're growing in terms of our commitment to equity. I want to talk to you about what you mentioned regarding digital technologies. So the OECD has done a lot of work about the opportunities and risks presented by digital technologies in classrooms. Um, what side of the fence do you come down on? Do you see them as more of an opportunity or more of a risk? I see it as a balance between the two. I was really impressed by the work that Tracy Burns did on uh, 21st century children and the, um, and the focus on technology and children as digital citizens now. And, you know, there's a lot of benefit that can come from children being able to access technology and to create with technology and to learn with technology. At the same time, there's uh, this sort of underbelly of the whole thing where, you know, bullying now isn't uh, simply a school thing. It follows students into their homes and the rest of their lives and a uh, reliance on technology as opposed to other forms of activity and entertainment. And so there's those balances. I think that technology has an awful lot to offer us. I think I'm excited about what artificial intelligence may be able to offer to the education system down the road that we can't even envision now, but I'm afraid of it as well. Are you not worried about uh, students using AI to produce their papers for exams? (laughs) Their essays. (laughs) Well, I am, but I think that's a reality we're going to have to, we're going to have to deal with. Um, uh, But I I think, uh, you know, it's, um, I think there's a lot of benefit to technology, but there's also the concerns that we have. I I do worry about who is creating algorithms uh, that we're using, that we could be using in schools. Algorithms uh, for um, for software and applications and AI aren't necessarily created by educators, and so they may not have the kinds of sensitivities that we would want to have in schools and so forth. So I worry about those kind of things, um, and I think we're going to just have to deal with uh, you know students asking whatever that AI chat thing is to write them an essay on whatever. We'll have to figure that one out. It's a strange and wonderful world. It certainly is. And look, John, thank you so much for speaking to us. It really has been great to speak to you for this brief period of time. I hope to those listening that they enjoy and learn from this discussion as much as I have. If you're interested in learning about the OECD's work in this area, then please Google OECD Strength Through Diversity. There is mounds of stuff to look at online, including a recent report on finding strength through diversity. Uh, Thanks again, John. Um, You can find out more about your work, I believe, Atlantic Education International, is that right? Absolutely, yep. Also, a big thanks to Stephen Flynn for producing I hope you can join us for another episode of Top Class in the near future. Thanks, John. Thank you, folks. Have a nice day.